book of Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 29, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he said himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy, fo thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. That is the way, brethren, as we know, that the Lord brings sinners to himself by preaching the gospel. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Brother Gary, would you lead us in prayer? Well, I might say, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. We want to ask you, we've been sitting on the premises, so let's stand on the promises. Stand together, What page 175 in your hymnal, 175. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring. Highest, I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing. 
standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. I'm standing, I'm standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. I'm standing on the promises of God. Verse 3, standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to Him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. I'm on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing. I'm standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit call, resting in my Savior as my all in all. Standing on the promises of God, I'm standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've had a blessed week this week. Brother Zach is going to come and speak to us on the subject of New Covenant Theology and Progressive Covenantalism Compared Disputable Differences. Zach, we appreciate you more than you'll ever know. We couldn't have these conferences, really, without you. And we want to thank David Leon. David has contributed not only praying for us and so on, but contributed in other ways known only to God and to himself. We're thankful for that, David. So Zach is going to come now and speak to us. Thank you, Brother Bill. So before we begin, let us pray and ask the Lord's guidance and his leading through his spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Father, we gather in your presence. Father, I ask that, that you would speak through me this morning. And Father, that this particular message, Father, that it would come through my love for my fellow brothers and Father, I pray that even though these are disputable differences that we will be discussing, Father, that your love will overshadow it and that brothers and sisters on both sides will be known by their love for you and their love for one another and their love for your word. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
And so as Brother Bill introduced this morning, the title of this message is New Covenant Theology and Progressive Covenantalism Compared, Disputable Differences. Now, although there are some disputable differences between NCT and progressive covenantalism, there is vast agreement between these two systems. And I want to reiterate this again. So in my previous message, I addressed the following eight areas of common ground. And I want to start with these again, just to re-emphasize this and set the context between for this discussion. So, first is historic Protestant Christianity. Second is the one plan of God centered in Jesus Christ. Three, God's plan is unfolded via the biblical covenants. Four, the interpretive priority of the New Testament. Five, the Mosaic law is an indivisible unit. Six, Christians are not under the Old Covenant. Seven, all believers are members of the New Covenant, have full forgiveness of sins, are permanently indwelt by the Spirit, and are empowered by the Spirit to please God, and hence a Baptistic ecclesiology. And eight, the church is the eschatological Israel as God's people. And again, this was not intended to be an exhaustive list. There are other areas of agreement. So it's just merely eight areas of common ground that I highlighted between the two systems in my previous message. Now in this particular message, I will highlight five disputable differences which exist to varying degrees because there are some that would more resonate with progressive covenantalism and some that would differ slightly more with it. So that's why I say varying degrees between progressive covenantalism and new covenant theology. Number one is whether or not a creation covenant existed between God and Adam. Two is the issue of the imputation of Christ's obedience. Three is the nature of the law of Christ. How do we define this? There are differences between the groups. Four, whether or not there is any instructive use of the Mosaic law for the Christian. And five, differences regarding terminology and categories related to the covenants. And so this list is largely pulled from the preface of Wellam and Brent Parker's book, Progressive Covenantalism and the Forward, where they address some of these differences and highlight them. And before I begin addressing these, I want to reiterate something that I said in my previous message. Again, this is a discussion among Christian brethren, and it must be set in that context. And so as believers in Christ, we must be able to lock arms together on all essential matters of the Christian faith. And we must be able to agree to disagree in non-essential or disputable matters in Christian love. So again, that famous statement, in the essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. So all, everything must be covered over with love. So the law of love, especially in the new covenant era, we are supposed to love one another as Christ has loved us. And when we fail to do this, we stand in direct violation of this command to love one another. And as long as we can accept these absolute essentials of orthodox evangelical Protestantism, we should be able to agree to disagree with our fellow believers on disputable matters. And so this list of five, and there are probably others, but especially this list of five, are non-essential differences between NCT and progressive covenantalism. And I would go on to say, because we've had a discussion where NCT differs from dispensational theology on the one hand, and covenant theology on the other, these again are dis disputable matters of the faith. And again, this is not to say that these matters are not important and that they don't significantly affect one's understanding of Scripture, because they certainly do, and they can. 
but notwithstanding, we must labor to be overly and abundantly gracious when interacting with our Christian brethren. And I mentioned this verse, or this set of verses in the previous message, but I'll read it again. So, Ephesians 4, 1-3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we come to the first disputable difference, the existence of a creation covenant, whether or not that's the case. Now the first disputable difference that exists to varying degrees between the two groups is whether or not a covenant existed between God and Adam in the beginning. Representing the progressive covenantalist position, Dr. Stephen Wellham writes, as we think of the Bible's overall meta-narrative, it is best to think of God's one plan, there's the one plan again, unfolding through a plurality of covenants, there's the unfolding of the biblical covenants, first starting with Adam and culminating in Christ and the new covenant. The creation covenant under Adam lays the foundation that continues in all the covenants and is fulfilled in Christ and his obedient work. God's plan then moves from creation in Adam to consummation in Christ. Wellam argues that starting with the creation covenant is crucial for grasping the Bible's story for at least two reasons. The first reason that Wellam states is the following. First, the creation covenant is foundational for all future covenants, since all subsequent covenants unpack Adam's role in the world. Adam in all humanity is created as God's image son a priest-king to rule over creation. Adam is created in relationship with God as he mediates God's rule to the world. He does not need to merit favor before God. Yet God, as holy and just, demands perfect obedience from his covenant partner. All subsequent covenant heads will function as subsets of Adam, who in God's plan will point forward to Christ. Even though the amount of space devoted to Adam is small, his role as the representative head of creation defines what comes after him and the entire work of Christ. Citing Romans 5, 12 to 21 and Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. Wellam continues with the second reason it is important. Second, the creation covenant is foundational for establishing various typological patterns that eventually reach their telos, their end, in Christ and the new covenant. For example, the rest of the seventh day in the Sabbath and, and salvation rest in Christ. Eden as a temple sanctuary, which is fulfilled in Christ as the new temple. And marriage, which points to a greater reality, namely Christ's relationship to his people. All of these patterns will eschatologically terminate in Christ and God's new covenant people. And finally, Wellam summarizes the importance of the creation covenant for grasping the Bible's overall storyline. In fact, in and through the Old Testament covenants, God reestablishes humanity's lost rule in Adam by the establishment of his kingdom and saving reign, Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. In embryonic form, the Old Testament covenants restore what was lost in the fall, yet always pointed forward to the coming of the Redeemer, Messiah, who alone establishes God's kingdom and the new creation by his life, death, resurrection, Ascension and Pentecost by the ratification of a new covenant. Various arguments are used by proponents of progressive covenantalism to support the existence of a pre-fall covenant, known as the covenant or the creation covenant or, crea or the covenant of creation. Pardon me. 
First, though the word covenant, barit, does not appear in Genesis 1-3, to it is argued it is not necessary for the word to appear in the Genesis account in order for a covenantal relationship to exist between God and Adam. Second, similar to Psalm 89 with regard to 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant, Hosea 6-7, whose most natural reading is argued to be like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant, counteracts the absence of the word covenant in Genesis 1-3. Third, the typological comparison in Romans 5-12-21 and 1 Corinthians 15 between the Lord Jesus Christ and Adam are argued to strongly imply that both men were not only heads of the human race, Adam of the old, Christ of the new, but also heads of their own respective covenants, and thus they were covenantal representatives before God. Adam in the creation covenant, Christ in the new covenant. Fourth, it is argued that the usage of the covenant formula, I establish my covenant with you, Hakim Barit, which appears in Genesis 6.18, 9.9, and 9.11, and elsewhere, found repeatedly in Genesis 6-9, through 9, implies that God's covenant with Noah was an amendment, reconfirmation, or reestablishment of a previous covenant. Namely, in this case, a pre-fall covenant that God forged with Adam. And fifth, many covenantal motifs pertaining to the priesthood, land, temple, king, even marriage, which are intimately associated with many of the later biblical covenants, appear in Genesis 1-3, with relation to the Garden of Eden, as well as Adam and Eve. Now, in my estimation, I believe it would be accurate to say that the majority within NCT do not hold to the existence of a pre-fall covenant. For example, the New Covenant Confession of Faith, authored by the elders of the New Covenant Bible Fellowship and associated with in-depth studies, the New Covenant Ministry of Jeff Volker, makes no mention of a pre-fall covenant. Another example is the Redeemer Catechism, a New Covenant Catechism, and very helpful, by the way, authored by Jordan Quinley, also makes no mention of a pre-fall covenant. Lastly, two of the largest NCT ministries, Cross to Crown Ministries, formerly Sound of Grace, and In-Depth Studies neither hold nor teach the existence of a pre-fall covenant. Now, various arguments are used by those proponents of NCT that do not hold to a pre-fall covenant. First, the word covenant does not appear until Genesis 6-9, when God forges a covenant with Noah. Second, it is argued that the most natural reading of Hosea 6-7 is not like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant, but either like men, they have transgressed the covenant, or perhaps even at Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Third, it is argued that the typological comparison in Romans 5-12-21 and 1 Corinthians 15 between the Lord Jesus Christ and Adam does not necessitate the existence of a creation covenant with Adam. And fourth, it is argued that the usage of the covenant formula, I establish my covenant with you, Hakim Barit, found repeatedly in Genesis 6-9 to and elsewhere, does not always indicate that the covenant being spoken of is in fact an amendment, reconfirmation, or reestablishment of a previous covenant. And thus it is reason that the usage of this covenant formula does not necessarily indicate that God's covenant with Noah is a renewal of a preceding covenant. Now, you'll see I'm laying out the arguments on both sides, not to refute or repudiate one or the other, but to lay them out so we can at least start a discussion. And now, as I mentioned yesterday, in yesterday, or now as I mentioned in yesterday's message, pardon me, there are advocates of NCT that would agree with progressive covenantalism's position. For example, Dr. Gary Long, former president of Providence Theological Seminary, writes, quote, 
that God's eternal purpose of redemption is, quote, covenantally revealed and administered through biblical covenants, beginning with a pre-fall covenant of obedience with Adam and a post-fall covenant of promise. So in short, Long agrees, even adding a post-fall covenant of promise. Elsewhere, he writes, the type-anti-type teaching of Adam and Christ in Romans 5, 12 to 19 demands that a covenant relationship existed between God and Adam before both before and after the fall, close quote. Furthermore, quite a few individuals who were directly associated with Providence Theological Seminary, referring to faculty and board members, held or do hold to a pre-fall covenant. And additionally, members of Providence Theological Institute here hold to it as well. Now, speaking for myself, as an advocate of NCT, I've been on both sides of this argument quite a few times, as I'm sure many others have. But if I were to define my position at this current time, I would say that I do hold to the existence of a pre-fall covenant. And even at times when I have not held to one, there is at least something very covenant-like back in Genesis 1-3 to that is built on later in the scriptural text. And I teach the existence of a pre-fall covenant to my ninth grade students in biblical theology at Samuel Fuller School, and I use Tom Schreiner's book Covenant, all the while explaining that I view this issue ultimately to be a disputable matter of the Christian faith. And so I ask, is it possible for a brotherly in-house discussion to take place regarding this issue? I also ask, if agreement is unattainable, are we still able to differ with one another in Christian love? Disputable difference number two, the imputation of Christ's obedience. The second disputable difference that exists to varying degrees between progressive covenantalism and New Covenant theology pertains to the issue of the imputation of Christ's obedience. In other words, whether Christ's passive obedience or whether both Christ's active and passive obedience is imputed to or put to the account of his people. Within NCT circles, there is a sizable contingent that understands that Christ's passive obedience, which is defined by this position as his sacrifice on the cross, as being imputed to the believer but at the same time rejects Christ's active obedience, which is defined as his perfect obedience to the Mosaic law, is not imputed to the believer. Or they reject that as being imputed to the believer, excuse me. That being said, I believe it would be accurate to say that it is held by a large group within NCT, though it is not necessarily the majority view. In, est in my estimation, though I could be wrong, it appears to me that relatively equal numbers believe that both Christ's active and passive obedience are imputed to his people. So again, a discussion is worthwhile in this case, a Christian discussion. And for the purposes of this presentation, I will refer to the first view as the passive obedience view and its counterpart as the total obedience view. Now, the New Covenant Confession of Faith, authored again by the elders of New Covenant Bible Fellowship and associated with in-depth studies, articulates the passive obedience view within NCT. In Article 13, Justification, the Confession states in the first paragraph concerning justification by faith, quote, God freely justifies, that is, he declares righteous, all those he irresistibly calls to himself. He does not justify anyone on the basis of their performance, infused righteousness, but by pardoning their sins and viewing them as perfectly forgiven and accepted, which is the definition of righteousness. God imputes or gives to the believer the complete forgiveness of sins and full acceptance by God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of his sacrificial death on the cross, which is the perfect payment for sin, righteousness is secured for all those who believe. 
Justification is received by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone to save us from our sins. This justifying faith is a gift of God and is not something we are able to produce or attain on our own. The particular sentence in this section that is expanded and explained in a subsequent paragraph entitled Imputation of Active Obedience is the following. Because of his sacrificial death on the cross, which is the perfect payment for sin, righteousness is secured for all those who believe. Now, in section 4 of article 13, the confession directly addresses the issue of the imputation of Christ's obedience. It states the following. The perfect obedience of Jesus to the Mosaic law was necessary in order for him to be our substitute on the cross. But the perfect law-keeping of Jesus is not imputed to our account and is not necessary for our justification. The only work that secures our justification is the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross by which he paid for our sins and secured for the believer a status with God as though the law had been perfectly kept. The cross work of Jesus secured everything necessary for our justification. Close quote. The confession lists such passages as Romans 5, 12 to 19, Romans 8, 3 to 4, Hebrews 10, 14 to 18, Hebrews 4, 15, and 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 as support for its view. Thus, we can see that this confession teaches that Christ's active obedience, defined here as the perfect obedience of Jesus to the Mosaic law, is not imputed to our account. However, Christ's passive obedience, defined here as the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, is imputed to the believer. Now, various arguments are used by those proponents of NCT that hold to the passive obedience view. First, it is argued that the phraseology of one act of righteousness in Romans 5, 12 to 19 is best understood as being restricted to the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross, his passive obedience as defined by this view. And as compared to the one transgression of Adam in that passage. Second, it is argued via Hebrews 10, 14 to 18, that Christ's single offering, whereby he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, is likewise best understood in this sense as well. Third, it is argued that other passages, such as Romans 8, 3 to 4, and 1 Peter 1, 18, are best understood as indicating the act of obedience applying to his perfect obedience to the Mosaic law, and his sacrifice is applying to the passive obedience, which is imputed to the believer according to this view. Fourth, those proponents of NCT that hold to the passive obedience view also view the imputation of the active obedience of Christ as an unnecessary holdover from covenant theology. And this primarily stems, in my estimation, from their definition of Christ's active obedience as Christ's perfect obedience to the Mosaic law. Now, I would like to point out two observations at this point. First, although all proponents of NCT who reject the existence of a pre-fall covenant do not hold to the passive obedience view, all those who do hold to the passive obedience view do not hold to the existence of a pre-fall covenant. And whether this is readily apparent or not, it is still worth noting. Second, many people within NCT do hold to the total obedience view as opposed to the passive obedience view. Now, this is perhaps partly due to this issue's proximity to that of justification by faith alone, a cornerstone of Protestant theology. And understandably, this proximity can and does engender a degree of controversy within NCT circles, as well as between NCT and progressive covenantalism. Now, that being said, it is still worth noting that the preceding excerpt was excerpts, which I read from the New Covenant Confession of Faith, representing the passive obedience view 
do also affirm justification by faith alone. It's important to note that as well in this discussion. So as just stated, there are advocates within NCT who do hold to the total obedience view. <clears throat> Pardon me. For example, Gary Long states, quote, Christ merited righteousness for the elect only and imputed it to them based upon his total obedience to the will of the Father in his life and death. Elsewhere, he writes, quote, the imputation of Adam's first sin to all mankind, the elect's sin to Christ, and Christ's righteousness to the elect are vital for the Christian faith. Without the doctrine of imputation, the whole doctrine of the substitutionary atonement and justification by faith alone in Christ alone are undermined. The type-antitype teaching of Adam and Christ in Romans 5.12-19 demands that a covenant relationship existed between God and Adam both before and after the fall. Long's words highlight the linkage by some advocates of NCT, and as we will see as well with progressive covenantalists, of a pre-fall covenant with Romans 5.12-19, and hence with the total obedience view. Additionally, I believe it would be fair to say that one of the largest NCT ministries, Cross to Crown Ministries, formerly Sound of Grace, also generally holds to the total obedience view. Now, speaking for myself as an advocate of NCT, I would fall into this particular camp as well that embraces the total obedience view. Now, advocates of progressive covenantalism likewise hold to the total obedience view meaning that the passive and active obedience of Christ are both imputed to the believer in justification. Wellam writes, Unfortunately, Adam disobeyed, resulting in sin and death. However, our triune God did not leave us to ourselves. Instead, God the Father chose to redeem his people by sovereign grace, by the provision of God the Son, who by his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection secured our eternal salvation. As the incarnate Son, Jesus as the last Adam perfectly obeyed for us as our covenant head. As the divine Son, he bore the penalty of our sin and satisfied God's own righteous demand against us. By our covenant faith union in Christ, wrought by the regenerating work of, the, of God the Spirit, we stand justified before God as his redeemed, reconciled, and adopted sons. As new creations in Christ, we are restored to the purpose of our creation namely to know, love, serve, and glorify God, now and forevermore, in a new heavens and new earth. Notice the two sentences, quote, as the incarnate Son, Jesus, as the last Adam, perfectly obeyed for us as our covenant head, as the divine Son, he bore the penalty of our sin and satisfied God's own righteous demand against us. This is the language of the total obedience view. Wellam also summarily states elsewhere, quote, the creation covenant under Adam lays the foundation that continues in all the covenants and is fulfilled in Christ and his obedient work, close quote. Thus, progressive covenantalists hold to the imputation of both Christ's active and passive obedience. Now, various arguments are used, <coughs> pardon me, sorry, various arguments are used by progressive covenantalists as well as those proponents of NCT that hold to the total obedience view. First, it is argued that Christ's active obedience should not be restricted to Christ's perfect obedience to the Mosaic law, which of course he never broke. Rather, it should be understood as his perfect obedience to the will of the Father, a far greater, a far higher standard. 
Second, it is argued that Christ's passive obedience should not be restricted to his sacrifice on the cross, as in the words of Pastor Greg Van Cort, quote, the act of obedience has been historically defined as to have its greatest fulfillment in the sacrifice of Christ, close quote. Third, it is argued that the one act of righteousness in Romans 5, 12 to 19 should not be so restrictively interpreted as to exclude any aspect of Christ's obedience from that obedience through which many will be made righteous. Thus, it is possible to view the one act of righteousness in Romans 5, 12 to 19, Christ's single offering in Hebrews 10, 14 to 18, and other references to Christ's sacrifice on the cross as possible synecdoches. In other words, literary expressions whereby a whole is signified via one of its component parts or vice versa. In other words, references to Christ's death on the cross may also referentially include other concepts such as the atonement, his perfect humanity, and his perfect obedience to the Father. Fourth, with regards to the passages such as 2 Corinthians 5.21, as Van Court states, quote, there is nothing in the context of either Corinthian passage to suggest that the righteousness imputed to the elect is anything other than his entire righteousness. They are entirely found in him by union with him. His entire righteousness is reckoned as theirs. Now, for these various reasons, advocates of the total obedience argue that it is best to speak of the obedience of Christ, meaning his obedience in the totality of his incarnate life. Now, at this particular point, I want to reemphasize that this is a disputable matter of the Christian faith, and believers should be able to freely hold to either position and differ with one another in Christian love. And so again, I ask, is it possible for a brotherly in-house discussion to take place regarding this issue? I also ask, if agreement is unattainable, are we still able to differ with one another in Christian love? Disputable difference number three, the law of Christ. How do we define it? The third disputable difference that exists to varying degrees between progressive covenantalism and new covenant theology pertains to how both groups define the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20-21, in namas Christu, literally in laud to Christ, as Brother Bill referenced in his message last night. Advocates of both groups, in my estimation, acknowledge that New Covenant believers are not only not under the law of Moses, 1 Corinthians 9, 20-21, but also are not without the law of God, since they are under the law of Christ, or in laud to Christ. I believe it would also be fair to say that both groups via the law of, uh, view the law of Christ as a new law, as a higher law, and as a better law than the law of Moses with its Ten Commandments. However, it is also fair to say that there are significant differences in how both groups define the law of Christ. The New Covenant Confession of Faith articulates one such view in New Covenant Theology. In Article 20, The Law of God, the Confession states in the seventh section concerning the law of Christ, quote, This is the law that must be obeyed in the New Covenant era. It comes to us through Jesus and the apostles. It is what believers are required to obey today. The content of the law of Christ contains both new laws and repeated laws from the Mosaic Law. Close quote. Thus, this confession defines the law of Christ as consisting of not only the new laws of the New Testament, but also certain commands from the Mosaic Law, which are repeated in the New Testament. In What is New Covenant Theology, Blake White defines the law of Christ in the following manner. Quote, It is clear that the heart of the law of Christ is cross-shaped love. But there is more to New Covenant ethics than love. 
It also includes the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. The law of Christ can be defined as those prescriptive principles drawn from the example and teaching of Jesus and his apostles, the central demand being love, which are meant to be worked out in specific situations by the guiding influence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Close quote. The Redeemer Catechism, authored by Jordan Quinley, echoes Blake White's definition of the law of Christ. Quote, The law of Christ includes the example and commands of Jesus himself and the way of life set forth in all of the New Testament. Yet the law of Christ may be summed up in Christ's new commandment, that we love one another as he has loved us. Therefore, our new life in Christ should exhibit Christ-likeness. Close quote. Dr. Gary Long also provides an explanation on the law of Christ. Quote, The law of Christ is not to be equated with the Decalogue. Although the law of Christ, the law of the new people, or the law of the new covenant people of God, excuse me, is related to the Decalogue in that it incorporates nine of the Ten Commandments. The law of Christ is a better law than the law of Moses, in the sense that, one, it is a higher revelation of righteousness, two, it is based upon a higher standard of love, and three, Christ's inauguration of the new covenant brings in things that are qualitatively newer, expressed in developing the theological significance of such basic concepts as new wineskins, new teaching, new commandment, new creation, new man, new name, new song, new Jerusalem, and all things new. Close quote. Each of these aforementioned definitions of the law of Christ contain aspects with which I heartily agree as an advocate of new covenant theology. As a result, I would suggest the following definition for the law of Christ, which attempts to harmonize each together. The law of Christ is the gracious law of the new covenant, which is covenantally binding upon the church and consists of the law of love, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's commands and teachings, the commands and teachings of the New Testament scriptures, and all scripture interpreted in light of Jesus Christ. I believe it would be fair to say that progressive covenantalism has a broader, more general definition of the law of Christ than does New Covenant theology. Consider the following explanation by Stephen Wellam concerning the law of Christ. Quote, The entirety of Scripture, including the Old Testament, is to be applied to Christians today, but in and through its fulfillment in Christ and the New Covenant. We do not embrace the hermeneutical options of either all of the Old Testament applies to us, unless explicitly abrogated, as taught in covenant theology, or none of the Old Testament applies to us unless it explicitly is repeated, dispensational theology. Instead, as Christians under the New Covenant, we are not directly under the previous covenants as covenants. Yet we apply the entire Old Testament to us as Scripture and in light of its fulfillment in Christ. For us, the law of Christ is the entirety of God's word applied to us in and through the new covenant, while also carefully applying the Bible's creation, fall, redemption, new creation structures to us. Let me repeat the final two sentences of Wellam's statement for emphasis. Instead, as Christians under the new covenant, we are not directly under the previous covenants as covenants. Yet we apply the entire Old Testament to us as Scripture and in light of its fulfillment in Christ. For us, the law of Christ is the entirety of God's Word applied to us in and through the New Covenant, while also carefully applying the Bible's creation, fall, redemption, new creation structures to us. 
In other words, advocates of progressive covenantalism understand the law of Christ to be all of Scripture applied to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. This definition resonates with me as I, in a similar fashion, understand the law of Christ to include all Scripture interpreted in light of Jesus Christ. In my estimation, I do believe there are advocates of New Covenant theology who would likewise agree with the progressive covenantalist definition of the law of Christ, generally speaking. Although, to be fair, such an understanding of the law of Christ is much less emphasized in NCT circles than in progressive covenantalism, as the aforementioned definitions appear to indicate. So again, I ask, is it possible for a brotherly in-house discussion to take place regarding this issue? I also ask, if agreement is unattainable, are we still able to differ with one another in Christian love? Disputable difference number four, the instructive use of the Mosaic Law. The fourth disputable difference that exists between the two systems concerns whether there is any instructive use of the Mosaic Law in the life of a New Covenant believer. As I stated in my previous message, advocates of both NCT and progressive covenantalism believe and teach Christians are not under the Old Covenant. Furthermore, both groups teach that all Scripture, to include the Old Testament Scriptures, are authoritative for the New Covenant believer. Both affirm the clear teaching of 2 Timothy 3.16-17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thus, both groups heartily teach that the Old Testament Scriptures, that is to say the Law and the Prophets, and the New Testament Scriptures together comprise the holy inspired, holy infallible, and holy inerrant Word of God. Furthermore, these Scriptures constitute the sole authority for faith and practice in the life of a believer, as I indicated that both hold to sola scriptura. To reiterate, Christians are neither members of the Old Covenant nor under its authority. However, Christians are still under the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures, just not the Old Covenant. John Riesinger notes, quote, Christians, while being free from the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, are not free from the Old Testament. Failure to maintain this distinction will result in confusion and can lead either to legalism or to antinomianism, close quote. Elsewhere, he states that, quote, the new covenant has replaced the old covenant in totality, but it has not replaced the God-breathed Old Testament scriptures, close quote. The disputable difference is how both groups practically implement the Old Testament scriptures as relates to their authority in the life of the new covenant believer. A focal point for this particular disputable difference can be seen as being highlighted in how proponents of each system interpret Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Quote, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Close quote. I believe it would be fair to say that many advocates of NCT apply the Old Testament scriptures primarily in terms of instructing believers in such areas as redemptive history and theological doctrine, but less, and I'm not saying a complete vacuum of this, but less in terms of moral or ethical instruction. Some in NCT understand Matthew 5, 17 to 18 to indicate that Jesus in his person and work has fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, which he certainly has, 
and thus all Old Testament laws have been abrogated and canceled as a result of his crosswork. Thus only those Old, Covenant, or old, those old Testament commands which are explicitly repeated in the New Testament are ethically binding upon the New Covenant believer. As stated above, Article 20 of the New Covenant Confession of Faith states the following concerning the law of Christ. Quote, this is the law that must be obeyed in the New Covenant era. It comes to us through Jesus and the apostles. It is what believers are required to obey today. The content of the law of Christ contains both new laws and repeated laws from the Mosaic law. Close quote. Speaking for myself as an advocate of NCT, I would respectfully differ from this position. I do so as I believe it is important to understand an essential component of the law of Christ to be all scripture interpreted in light of Jesus Christ. Thus, though new covenant believers are not under the Mosaic law as covenant law, we can still glean ethical or moral instruction from the Old Testament, even the Mosaic law, provided that we understand it in its light of fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant. Progressive covenantalism teaches that the Old Testament, including the Mosaic Law, applies to Christians today through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Covenant. Representing the progressive covenantalist view on this issue, Wellam states, quote, the entirety of Scripture, including the Old Testament, is to be applied to Christians today, but in and through its fulfillment in Christ and the New Covenant. We do not embrace the hermeneutical options of either all of the Old Testament applies to us unless explicitly abrogated, covenant theology, or none of the Old Testament applies to us unless explicitly repeated, dispensational theology. Instead, as Christians under the new covenant, we are not directly under the previous covenants as covenants, yet we apply the entire Old Testament to us as scripture and in light of its fulfillment in Christ. For us, the law of Christ is the entirety of God's word applied to us in and through the new covenant, while also carefully applying the Bible's creation, fall, redemption, new creation structures to us. Later, he states, quote, the old covenant is best viewed as a unit which has now reached its fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant. As Christians, we are no longer under the old covenant as a covenant, close quote. Wellam's teaching on the Sabbath is especially instructive of the progressive covenantalist view on the application of the Old Testament scriptures and hence the Mosaic law to the new covenant believer. Quote, regarding the Sabbath, like the Decalogue, we obey the Sabbath command in light of its fulfillment in Christ. We do so by first setting the Sabbath command within its covenantal location, which is the Old Covenant. This allows us to see how it functioned as a command and sign to Israel, which no longer applies to us, but also how it typologically pointed forward to a greater salvation rest that is now here in Christ, which does apply to us. In this way, Christians obey, quote-unquote, the Sabbath by entering into the rest that it typified and predicted, namely salvation rest in Christ, close quote. Wellam further describes this position regarding the authority and applicability of the Old Testament scriptures to the, to the New Covenant believer in his work, Progressive Covenantalism. Quote, Although Christians are not under the law as a covenant, it still functions for us as scripture. As with any biblical text, however, before we directly apply it to our lives, we must first place it in its covenantal location. And then second, we must think through how that text points forward anticipates, and is fulfilled in Christ. Only by doing this can we correctly apply any biblical text to our lives as Christians. 
In fact, apart from following this hermeneutical process, we will correct, incorrectly pardon me, apply Scripture. He continues by discussing the applicability of the Levitical sacrificial system to the Christian. For example, if we ask, does the Levitical sacrificial instruction apply to us today? The answer is no, if we mean as God's covenant instruction to Israel. We as Christians live after Christ, who by his glorious work has brought the Old Testament sacrifices to their telos, Hebrews 5 to 10. Yet Leviticus as scripture does apply to us in diverse ways, as prophecy, instruction, and wisdom, but now only in light of Christ. What is true of Leviticus is also true of the law covenant, that is to say circumcision, food laws, civil laws, and the Decalogue, no part of the law is applied to us without first placing it in its covenantal location, its immediate and epical context, and then asking how the entire covenant is fulfilled in Christ, its canonical context. Now, clearly, there is a disputable difference that exists to varying degrees between progressive covenantalism and NCT concerning whether there is any instructive use of the Mosaic law, and we could say, in general, the Old Testament, in moral and ethical instruction in the life of a New Covenant believer. Again, I believe it is fair to say that many advocates of NCT apply the Old Testament scriptures primarily in terms of instructing believers in such areas as the flow of redemptive history and theological doctrine, but less, though not a complete vacuum, in terms of moral and ethical instruction. Progressive covenantalism differs with this understanding, teaching that the Old Testament, including the Mosaic Law, applies to Christians today in and through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Covenant as Scripture. So again, I ask, is it possible for a brotherly in-house discussion to take place regarding this issue? And again, I ask, if agreement is unattainable, are we still able to differ with one another in Christian love? And I will keep coming back to these two questions because they are important. And the last disputable difference that I will mention, covenant categories and terminology. The fifth disputable difference that exists to varying degrees between these two systems concerns differences regarding terminology and categories related to the covenants. Wellam encapsulates this particular difference from the position of progressive covenantalism. Quote, In contrast to covenant theology, we do not divide the covenants in redemptive history into two categories of the covenant of works, law, and the covenant of grace, grace or gospel. Although law and gospel are helpful theological categories, which we affirm in regard to their theological content, Scripture does not divide up the biblical covenants this way. By law, we affirm that God's will and nature is the law and that God makes an absolute demand on his creatures. By gospel, we affirm that God, by sovereign grace, takes the initiative to redeem a people for himself, and that he must achieve our redemption from beginning to end. But we do not think that each covenant can simply be divided under one of these two categories to the exclusion of the other. Wellam also, also comments on strictly categorizing covenants as either conditional or unconditional. So instead of categorizing each covenant as either unconditional or conditional, it is best to see a combination in each covenant, culminating in Christ and the new covenant. By unconditional, we mean that God takes the initiative by grace to act and redeem, which is true in every covenant. 
By conditional, we mean that God demands complete loyalty and love from his covenant people, and thus perfect obedience, yet sadly we do not render it. This sad fact is important to remember since a crucial way the Bible's story progresses is that each covenant progressively reveals and anticipates the coming of the perfect covenant keeper, our Lord Jesus Christ, who acts on our behalf and secures our eternal redemption by his entire life, death, and resurrection. Advocates of progressive covenantalism argue that though these categories are helpful, they should not be too strictly applied, as the biblical covenants do not fit neatly into one category versus the other. Rather, they overlap multiple covenantal categories. This criticism would also likely extend to any strict usage of such terms as royal grant versus suzerain vassal treaty and gracious versus not gracious. Now, in my opinion, this criticism is generally fair, as there is a tendency to a stricter categorization of the covenants among some advocates of NCT. But perhaps, again, it may be overstated. Because, as we all know, we like categories for ease of use and definitions and things like that. For example, the New Covenant Confession of Faith states the following concerning the Old Covenant in Article 9, Section 3. The Old Covenant is also called the Mosaic Covenant or the First Covenant. This was a legal agreement between God and the nation of Israel that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This covenant was not a gracious covenant. Although the Lord had a gracious purpose in giving this covenant, the covenant itself was a legal covenant that demanded perfect obedience. The failure to obey would result in the curse of God. This covenant was used to prepare the way for the Messiah. Israel as a whole was not a believing people. The old covenant caused the Israelites to sin all the more. It was never the means of anyone's salvation. The old covenant functions as a physical picture of many spiritual truths that can be used to teach believers today. The Ten Commandments are the essence of the Mosaic Law or Mosaic Covenant. The pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost brought a close to the Old Covenant era. In my estimation, advocates of progressive covenantalism would differ with the phraseology, quote, this covenant was not a gracious covenant, arguing that it emphasizes the conditional aspects of the covenant to the detriment of the unconditional aspects of the covenant. Consider also the New Covenant Confession of Faith's statement regarding the Davidic Covenant in Article 9, Section 4. The Davidic Covenant is an unconditional covenant made between God and David through which God promises David and Israel that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and the tribe of Judah. It would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. The Davidic Covenant is unconditional because God does not place any conditions of obedience upon its fulfillment. The fulfillment of the promises made rests solely on God's faithfulness and does not depend at all on David or Israel's obedience. The physical fulfillment of the promise to David came through his son Solomon as he reigned upon the throne and was responsible for the building of the physical temple. Both the temple and Solomon's reign were temporary, however, and only served as a picture of the true fulfillment of the covenant, which is the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. In my estimation, Advocates of progressive covenantalism would agree with the vast majority, but would differ with the phraseology, the Davidic covenant is unconditional because God does not place any conditions of obedience upon its fulfillment, arguing that it emphasizes the unconditional aspects of the covenant to the detriment of the conditional aspects. It is certainly true that the failure of David's heirs would not bring about the abrogation of the covenant. 
That being said, God did promise to discipline kings who disobeyed God and continued in said disobedience, as stated in 2 Samuel 7. Admittedly, I myself have been at times too strict in my categorization of covenants with the conditional versus unconditional law versus gospel and royal grant versus suzerain vassal treaty. The approach of progressive covenantalism regarding classification and categorization of the biblical covenants resonates with me personally because we must all strive to let the Bible speak for itself and resultantly conform our theological understanding to its thinking. And so again, I ask the two questions. Is it possible for a brotherly in-house discussion to take place regarding this issue? And secondly, if agreement is unattainable, are we still able to differ with one another in Christian love? And so conclusion. In this particular message, I have highlighted five disputable differences which exist to varying degrees between progressive covenantalism and new covenant theology. One, whether or not a creation covenant existed between God and Adam. Two, the imputation of Christ's obedience. Three, the nature of the law of Christ. How do we define it? Four, whether or not there is any instructive use of the Mosaic law for the Christian. And five, differences regarding terminology and categories related to the covenants. And despite these disputable differences between NCT and progressive covenantalism, there is vast agreement between these two systems. And I want to emphasize that. This is an in-house discussion amongst brothers in Christ, and it should be kept in such a light. And again, I want to close by reiterating that list of eight uh, areas of common ground. Number one, historic Protestant Christianity, both agree. One plan of God centered in Christ, both agree. God's plan is unfolded via the biblical covenants, both agree. The interpretive priority of the New Testament, both agree. The Mosaic law is an indivisible unit, both agree. Six, Christians are not under the old covenant, both agree. Seven, are all believers, or correction, all believers are members of the new covenant, have full forgiveness of sins, are permanently indwelt by the Spirit, and are empowered by the Spirit to please God, both agree. And lastly, the church is the eschatological Israel as God's people. Both agree. And so I close by saying, in the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So, thank you. I suppose, or if you do have questions, we can save them for the question-answer panel. Thank <laughs> you.